0: Welcome to the San Diego Psychological Association's podcast, Diving Into Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Carcel. This podcast has been developed with the intent to inform and educate the general public and providers and should not be relied upon for any other purpose. The content, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not those of the San Diego Psychological Association. Today we are talking about sociocultural traumas related to marginalized identities with Dr. Tahereh Moffitt. Dr. Moffat specializes in work with people of color, and we will be discussing the challenges people of color face in their lives, including race-based trauma and internalized racism. Welcome, Dr. Moffat. We're happy to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here and honored and privileged that I was asked to speak on this very important topic that is all around
0: us. Yes, it is. You know, I, I want to start by saying that you and I had originally recorded a podcast on this. And after reflection, you know, it's interesting because I teach multicultural. Uh, psychology and, you know, really have studied this. It's a part of my specialization. And this is something you specialize in. And you and I just had a brief talk about our last discussion. And for me, it was really interesting that I was trying to keep it, I think, more polite and inclusive, which is still what I want to do in the extent that we can. But there's a realization of how difficult and challenging it is to talk about racial trauma and race-based stress and that it can be really difficult for even myself, a person of color, I identify as a person of color, I am a Latina and a person of color, Um, and for you yourself, how you identify, it's just fascinating that even those of us who are in this field have to take a step back and really talk about this openly and without fear of retribution, without concern um, of offense. And uh, yeah, I'm opening it up big today and I'm curious what you think.
1: Well, I so appreciate that we get the opportunity to record this again, to really unpack and get down to like the core layers of what's going on here, because that's how healing starts in our uh, personally and on a societal level is really... Uh, being honest and open about, you know, uh, the realities of racism and race-based trauma on people of color. I feel also a need to identify myself and share my identities right now so your listeners know kind of like uh, the angle I'm coming from. So I identify as a cisgender female, she, her pronouns. I identify also as heterosexual and a multicultural woman of color, of white American, Black American, and Persian descent.
0: Yes, intersectionality, which is something we can talk about today too, as far as our identities. But you know, before we jump in, your story is is wonderful. You have excellent credentials going to Columbia University, getting your master's in social work. You also have a nursing background. I'm curious uh, with everything that you've done, what motivated you to become a psychologist?
1: So that is (laughs) multi-layered. That is not a straightforward answer. So I'll kind of tell you in a nutshell, during my social work training, my initial goal was to become an LCSW. And during the course of that training, you know, I realized personally, I needed more actual, a little bit of handholding <laughs> training and experience. And so I applied to doctoral programs in psychology and got in. And one of the reasons why I did that was really, I wanted to contribute to the field of psychology in terms of Black women, POCs in the psychology field, because we are, we are here, we are definitely here, but we are not at the level in terms of number and representation that we should be at all. And so I wanted to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. That was very Mm -hmm. meaningful to me as a woman, as a woman of color, as a black woman. Those were some of the deeper reasons why I decided to be a psychologist as well as just wanting the most training I could get. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then also, um, My view of change, Um, I feel with my personality type and just the way I am with people in my personal life, I tend to be more one-on-one, feel more comfortable one-on-one with folks. And so I think change starts with a person in their heart on an individual level and then extends out to society. And so I wanted to be part of that and to witness that healing with folks. And yes, so that that's it in a nutshell.
0: Oh, I'm so glad that uh, you are a part of our community and you've contributed so much. And thank you for your identification. It's, it's wonderful to have that cultural competency that you just demonstrated. And for any clinicians listening, you know, I'm sure that word has been thrown around in our graduate school programs and you know, the practicality of it, of, of what is cultural competency, it, it's much deeper than just a phrase. It's really understanding our identities. It's really understanding who we are and where we come from. And I think that this is something that we need um, to, to really talk about and process more. And it's, I think we miss that. Sometimes um, it, I was just attending uh, the APA conference this past week uh, virtually, and it was all about marginalized groups. And I was so happy and excited. And it, a part of me was also like, "Ah, oh, I hope this isn't the first or the you know the beginning." It, it, it right. and why wasn't it before? But it, I'm just happy it's happening, and that we're really understanding the impact. Of what it's like to be a person of color in this society, what it has meant, what it what it continues to mean and how we grow. Um, but yes, your, your background is impressive. Um, I think it's really helpful that how you identify, you can bring that into your work as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of that, um, what setting do you work in currently and primarily the populations you work with? So
1: right now I have my own private practice. It's a teletherapy practice. And I see uh, individual adults 18 and over. And a lot of my clients identify as POC. It runs the whole spectrum, honestly. And I love that. I love the fact that I get an opportunity to work with clients who in their everyday life, their identities in terms of their racial identity, their ethnic identity, and just how they show up in the world is in and of itself a source of stress and trauma for them. And so uh, the fact that I am also a person of color, I think, provides some comfort for them that maybe I can understand to a certain level Part of my work also is not assuming that I know what their experience is like just because I'm a person of color too. That in of itself can facilitate kind of a marginalization too. And so I like to just hear and listen and witness what they have, what they have to bring in in their own personal experience. And also I, I do disclose when appropriate to help them understand that Maybe there have been times where I've also experienced some of what they've experienced as well. So I'm not just this kind of like blank slate looking at them like a robot. You know, I, I really like to bring in myself into the therapeutic relationship too, especially with people of color. Mm-hmm. Because I think that is very important mm-hmm. for them to know they're not alone and their anxieties and their worries and their vigilance yeah, and things like that.
0: Absolutely. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that therapeutic connection. Making that known to your clients can also normalize and validate their experiences. And that's a very important part. Um, you know, a lot of people who come to therapy, it's these portrayals of therapy that we've seen in mainstream media have varied in such so wildly from the very inappropriate to the very stoic Uh (laughs) you know so it's it's interesting how how we're being portrayed a lot but at the end of the day you know that connectivity with a therapist and a client to know hey i get i get what you're saying or at least it you know and i tell people this you know if you're you don't identify as a person of color or in a marginalized group that you know you don't have to have these experiences, but be aware of them, mm-hmm. right? Having that education, having that awareness is truly the definition, in my opinion, of that cultural competence piece for clinicians, and um, that's so important. That's that's really significant. So I'm glad you brought that up about that that piece of uh, connecting. Yes,
1: now, that's so important. You know, whether you are a therapist who is a person of color or not, you know, to just first, seek to listen,
0: respect, and bear witness. Yes. I love that. No matter who you are. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I love it. And then go from there. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> not make assumptions, obviously, right? That's the golden rule in my opinion. At least I always try to keep that in my own mind, um, not imposing our own values, really getting to know the person in front of us um, and and trying to understand their experiences. And if we do have similar experiences that we can also relate to that. And, you know, speaking of this, I'm, I'm wondering, what do you think is the most important duty for a psychologist or therapist working with marginalized individuals. So I'll
1: go back to what I had just mentioned just a second ago because I think it is so important and that's three-pronged, listen, respect, and bear witness. And then also approach the work from a strength space perspective. Mm -hmm. So not just honing in on just the things that the person Is struggling with, but also balance that out with their strengths and the things that they have that they do have control over in their life. Because as a person of color, we can oftentimes feel so out of control and so alone and scared,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? Are we going crazy, quote unquote, crazy, right? Are you going crazy with your worries and your anxieties about am I being judged? Am I being discriminated against? So I think it also is, often the conversation is specifically just around all the, uh, the the deficits, the ways in which we are marginalized, but I think it's also equally important to talk about strengths, that person's strengths, and what they have to empower themselves in their day-to-day lives. The other thing that I want to mention is holding their emotional pain, mm-hmm. because often people of color have a lot of pain that they are aware of, and sometimes that they're not aware of, you know, and it might show up in their body and physical symptoms, things like that. And they may not even realize that it's coming from this kind of constant uh, sense of disconnection and aloneness and fear. Yes. So holding their emotional pain without trying to fix, without trying to fix things and make it better, things like that first, For the for the therapists themselves is to recognize and just I think it's important to just accept you're gonna have biases, you're gonna have assumptions you make about any group of people. That's just the way it is. I I, you know, I hate to say it, right? I mean it's not Mm -hmm. it's not it's true. It's true, right? Yeah, it's fact. It's a fact. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it's important for us to humble ourselves, for me to humble myself, right? To say, okay, I got biases. I got prejudices here. Mm-hmm. What might my, my biases and prejudice be for this particular group of people that this client belongs to? Right. It, right. right? Yep. And to hold that because that's the only way that I can either A, prevent harming this client or B, recognize when that stuff does show up in the room so that I can rectify it so that I can seek to repair that Mm -hmm. with the client. Because oftentimes people of color don't get that opportunity even. When they feel alone and discriminated against, oftentimes they don't feel safe enough to have that conversation with their boss or the professor or, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's very important for me to be able to be that person in their life that they feel like they can have these vulnerable conversations with that they otherwise may not get in their life hmm so the therapist acknowledging their own privileges too and that possible impact on the client for myself even though I am a person of color I still have certain privileges
0: hmm
1: and it would be harmful for me not to ignore that I mean for it would be harmful for me to ignore that exactly right yes yeah, yeah. so uh, yes I hope that answered the question in a way that felt
0: absolutely you <laughs> understand it was so rich your answer was so rich i was like checking okay. off my mental boxes here um yes no that's fantastic i want to circle back to some of the things you said you know when you were speaking of the experiences of people of color marginalized groups and to, you know, again, I'm putting my own words here and paraphrasing, but to not make assumptions, you know, I think it's very important that there's statistics here that really validate the reality that people of color have faced challenges, period, end of discussion, right? there. This isn't up for debate. We're not debating this. But unfortunately, this is where it gets very touchy and where it's really sad, actually, that we're not able to have these open discussions recognizing that yes everybody has dis- you know problems concerns disparities there are things that are there and some groups as you said having we having privilege in some areas some groups don't have that privilege and that it is re- our responsibility as not only clinicians but in my opinion as human beings to know our privilege mm-hmm. and to understand, like, first of all, we have geographical privilege. Being born in a country like the United States, Absolutely. right there is geographical privilege, right? You know, but then other groups don't have the same privilege as the more prioritized groups will say in our country. And and that needs to be acknowledged, right? So this is where we get into more of race-based trauma, I think it was a great statistic. The U.S. General, uh, the U.S. Surgeon General, I should say, stated that racial and ethnic health disparities were likely due to racism. Yes, this is from research, right? And that there's a growing clinical empirical literature that attests that people of color and indigenous individuals experience racism, discrimination, microaggressions, which affect their mental mm-hmm. health. Again, this is not up for debate. Facts and fact. Mm -hmm. And when we have people, and I'm going to encourage anybody who's listening to this, if this bothers you or you have a twinge, that's not a bad thing. Let's explore it, right? You brought up something that I think is really important, Dr. Moffat. You brought up our own biases, our own things that if we don't know that we have our own stuff, and that we twinge when someone says something about their own trauma and we're like, wait, but I, you know, something happens and there's a defensiveness right there. There's something we need to explore. And this doesn't have to be aggressive. I think what's what's really frustrating for me personally is that. And I understand it, right? Conceptually, there's levels of a person's uh, insight, what we've had the opportunity, again, the privilege of education to understand and explore the privilege of therapy. I've done my own work here. So I know how to get to that acceptance of like, okay, I get that you may not have done this kind of work and that I still have more work to go. I still have more stuff to learn. Right. And that is a very humbling position. I'm not perfect, not even close. Right. And that
1: it gets dangerous if we feel that we don't have to anything more to very learn. Very
0: dangerous. Yeah. But that that's mm-hmm. where people get stuck sometimes. And that's why I wanted to talk a little bit more about race-based trauma. And you were mentioning, you know, challenges that people of color face. I would love for you to talk more about that since you have this expertise, you work with people of color frequently. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with the most common challenges that people of color face and tell us a little bit about that race-based trauma concept. Mhm.
1: Thank you so much and and thank you so much for sharing what you did. I mean, it is it is a fact that racism, anti-Asian racism, anti-Latinx racism, anti- Black racism and anti-Indigenous people's racism has a detrimental effect, negative effect on their mental, emotional well-being. And I see it and I do see it in my work. And uh, I appreciate that question. Um, Some of the things that I see in my work are, well, first, actually, let me just uh, define what race-based trauma is. Uh, (laughs) Let's just start from there, right? Sure, Um, So that is the cumulative traumatizing impact of racism on a racialized person. Mm -hmm. The cumulative traumatizing impact of racism on a racialized person. It's cumulative. Mm -hmm. It can be insidious. Yes. Right? Oftentimes it is these days, actually. (laughs) And actually, there is something that you mentioned earlier that I wanted to just um, expand on just really quickly, if you don't mind. Um, Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely.
1: When you talked about the privilege, right, and um, you know, white privilege, in fact, right, um, is unearned Mm -hmm. power and benefits, right? It actually, honestly, upsets me when the the stance that people have that all you got to do is work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and things like this. Mm -hmm. The science, the research that you just shared, really refutes that concept. Mm -hmm right? Because we're not, unfortunately, uh, at the end of the day, we're not on equal playing field in terms of societal resources and opportunities. In terms of our human worth and our human value, we are all the same. But in terms of how that plays out in society, it is not equal. And I just wanted to mention that, expand on what you just said, because I think that that was really important and really harmful and perpetuates the colorblindness Colorblindness mentality mm-hmm. that we're all just equal. What's, you know, making racism a lighthearted thing? You know, that's just silly. That's just dumb. Whatever. You know, well, it has a real, real harmful and painful impact on people on a day to day basis. So, uh, your question was, what are the most common challenges uh, that POCs face in my work that I've seen in my work? And one of the things that I see a lot, especially among Black women that I've worked with, is questioning their own reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Which in the, 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 psycho- the um, psychology or just mental health field can sometimes be misunderstood as paranoia, as actual psych- psychotic paranoia, and it's not. It's very different. Yes. This questioning reality shows up in my work, like things like did that actually just happen? Was that what I thought it was?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Am I making a big, big deal over nothing? Mm-hmm. So whether it is real or perceived, that's the problem is that sometimes we don't know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Right. And that in and of itself can create just as much psychological pain and discomfort and distress as when it is black and white night and day, definitely racism. Right. That's happening. Right the person knows, right? And they're not questioning. It can have the same psychological impact. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I see. The other thing that I see a lot is persistent anxiety and worry in life that just doesn't seem to go away. Mm -hmm. And that's why the person comes to see me, right? They're just feeling anxious all the time and just unsafe. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Depression, of course, right? I used to work with a lot of POC students, college students, A lot of them were in like a PWI, which is a primarily white institution. Um, And that is navigating that space is really difficult and can feel really isolating for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And also stereotype threat is another thing that I see a lot, which is the psychological threat of conforming to negative stereotypes of one's own group. So one negative stereotype, for example, of black women is they're just angry. They're just always angry. And so what happens is, and what I've seen in my work, and I will say that I have also experienced this in my own life too, is when you're passionate about something, when you have a voice, when you have an idea, an opinion, it can be oh so insidiously minimized or seen as hysterical or ignored uh, because You know, people might get defensive because they'll see you as an angry person. Right. And they don't feel as safe, right? And so then that often leads, what I've also seen in my work, to respectability politics. Mm -hmm. So POCs conforming to what, like, the white standard. Uh, What perpetuates white supremacy is this idea that white is normal and natural and to be valued above all else. And so respectability pop politics connects to that where, say, for example, uh, a person of color might, in or out of their awareness, <laughs> combination of both, change their behavior, the way they dress, their hair, in order to conform to a white standard. Because mm-hmm. that is often seen as normal, right? Or moral even, right? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. And so that's really psychologically harmful because it suppresses that person's who they are right and they have to hold that in a lot and it can lead to the anxiety and the depression and traumatic reactions too. traumatic reactions often show up as uh, like the persistent anxiety i was saying before developing sleep problems concentration problems you know lots of strong body sensations and really a intrusive thoughts and memories, things like that. And also just a uh, sense that the world can't be trusted or uh, not knowing if they can trust themselves.
0: Right. Yeah. Significant symptoms of trauma. Exactly. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. I actually want to take this back a little bit too, because I, I think it's important that we talk about how to heal, as you mentioned, how to work with people of color who have experienced Micro and macro aggressions. Who've experienced racism, um, who've experienced this in, in various levels of their lives, also too for therapists of color who hear these stories and have vicarious traumatization for these experiences. That happens as well. There's real topics here that are significant for us to. We're not going to be able to do this all in one talk, so perhaps this will be ongoing, but that we at least cover the surface of how impactful this is. And I wanted to bring up something, um, you know, most of us in clinical psychology, most therapists uh, probably have studied this or heard about this, but for anybody who's listening general public, you know, if, if you're not familiar with uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, and you're not familiar with Kenneth and Mamie Clark and the Dahl test, I really encourage looking this up. Of course, uh, I'm always uh, skeptical of uh, Google because there's a lot of information that is incorrect. But, you know, this particular, uh, the Clark doll experiment was so profound. It was done, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1940s. And basically, the test itself was to show a white doll and then a black doll to African-American black children and to see which that they preferred and how they felt about these dolls, right? So hand over fist, consistently, the children favored the white dolls. These are young kids, children, babies, picking the white doll because they knew at such a young age the privileged majority group. And what broke my heart when I was learning about this, reading about this, actually watching the video, was there was one particular little girl that started talking about how she didn't like her hair, she didn't like her skin color, that she wasn't good enough. And she looked like she was five years old. And just how devastating and deep this goes. And that I understand, you know, for people who have resistance to acceptance of these horrific atrocities that have occurred in our in our nation Mm -hmm. um you know the transatlantic slave trade happened you know we're not going to sit here and dismiss the horrific things that have happened in this country the absolute horrific treatment of native americans and indigenous peoples um that happened you know Mm -hmm. and that the aftermath of these things still live with us it's still here Yes, historical, historical trauma. trauma. Yes. yes, and that it's led to people having, you know, specifically, I'll, I'll focus on, uh, you know, uh, the Black experience to the best of my knowledge. So please correct me, um, you know, with with this. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's led to having, you know, people have to code switch in in white groups. Yes, meaning that you know, an African American culture or with black communities there's a certain language that is practiced but that language Mm -hmm. has not been accepted it's not been used in a more uh, Mm -hmm. predominantly white culture so an african-american person knows how to switch code switch their language in order to fit in Mm -hmm. this is real stuff like this is really happening and i think for me the, the hardest and saddest part is I, I want so desperately to, for people who don't identify with these marginalized groups who are Caucasian and who really want to poo-poo everything, you know, that has to do with mm-hmm. the historical content of this nation. Yeah, Please, please just hear the stories. We're not asking anybody yeah. to change or feel and not to feel guilt, not to feel badly. That is not the intent here. You know, I, 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 I've heard this a few times. Well, I didn't do this to the, you know, these people I didn't do. Uh-huh. Yeah, we know. And that's not the point of the discussion. I didn't either. Right. I didn't do any of this right. stuff, but I <laughs> empathize. Yes, mm-hmm. I feel that pain, even though it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when people are In these groups and having to, you know, basically, again, going back to code switching, you know, having to change the manner of how they speak from either Mm -hmm. an urbanized way or, or just a more comfort way for them in their own group just to fit in. Yeah. Right. Just Just to get by using slang just to get by, you know, and and that's just that's just one example. There's just so many of these things. Um, And when we talk about micro and macro aggressions, you know, micro being more of the subtle passive aggressive Mm -hmm. things, commentaries, you know, things, you know, even looks, things like that macro being more overt, like what you're seeing now. Mm-hmm. For the last five years, I don't know if you feel this way. But for the last five years, I've been like, Oh, my gosh, we're really seeing it. Now. Yeah, it is. Um,
1: it's, it's very, I mean, it's always been there. But it's just whether yep. or not it surfaces more or not. you right.
0: Right. And that's why it right. throws people
1: off. It throws some people off is, you know, particularly non POCs, white, white folks, yes. right? It throws them off yes. because they're like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were over this, you know? Right. Well, we're not. To expand on something that you said, um, it just, my, my mind was just kind of imploding over here as you were talking. And um, <laughs> one of the things that, you know, I think you, you had started off saying is, is for those folks who are resistant to either the reality that racism still exists or minimize it in any way have that you know guilt or or, you know white guilt right right right. um that you know people are so scared i think to really see racism for what it is and acknowledge it and on all of its entirety because yeah it does it does end up threatening themselves in some way Mm -hmm. like they feel guilty and that feels really scary to them Mm -hmm. um or things like that but you know This ties into that intergenerational trauma. It's like, you know, just like people can be predisposed to uh, substance dependence, right? Or um, predisposed to certain mental health conditions, right? That gets passed down just like the impact of trauma can get passed down. Mm -hmm. There's actually been science and studies on it, the epigenetics of this. Yes, yes that it can be, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist in that respect, but, and, and I apologize if I'm using the wrong words to describe the science of this, but the, I think it's epigenetics. It is. It's accurate. Epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, it actually changes uh, the genetics that historical racism can get passed down. And so yes. we are, we would be remiss if we just said that, that the historical racism or historical trauma only impacts POCs that impacts white folks too, mm-hmm. in terms of the ideas and the the ways that they see the world and people of color. And so I think that if also white folks didn't just see racism as a Ku Klux Klan, right. That if they say that they are, they hold racism, that automatically that they, they're like right. the proud boys or the Ku Klux Klan or something like that. no, We're not saying that. We're just saying that you live in a world that with racism and naturally you're going to internalize that. We can't have any progress unless everyone accepts that we're all on the same page. That This is real. This exists. Yes. Right. And it impacts everyone differently.
0: Yeah. And also, you know, we talked a little bit about this last time and I think I, I do want to bring this up again you know the the purpose of these discussions is to open up and learn about each other, not guilt or shame or you know put anybody down. you know for white allies, thank you, thank you for understanding your privilege. Um, you know my husband is identifies as you know a Caucasian male and he really is uh, phenomenal in a lot of these terminologies he's learned just by being with me and trying to understand and and my understanding and let me be very clear learning my own discriminatory things in my life and the the learnings of my ancestors and family lineage and saying hey wait a minute i have racism thoughts i have racist thoughts too and i got to stop that i have to stop this and i have to catch myself in judgments Yes. And I have to catch myself. Yes. And, and this goes across the board. I mean, we can talk about this with people who don't fit the, the profile of body mm-hmm. image. We can talk about this with race, sexual orientation, but to notice our judgments. That's like my favorite phrase, by the way. You can talk to any of my clients. I'm always saying, notice your judgments. Where are they coming from? That's all I'm asking is let's look at why, where, how, and just be curious about it. And I think maybe we can talk a little bit, kind of lean into how do we heal this? How do we fix this? Absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's so much evidence and I could go on and list a lot of the research studies. I, I actually have them right here in front of me, but it'll take another hour, uh-huh. you know, talking about the harm, you know, the mental health harm of, of yeah. you know, basically all of the trauma that has come to people of color and marginalized Mm -hmm. groups. You know, I want to make sure I try to be as inclusive as possible Mm -hmm. and recognizing too that again, I'm still learning, we're still learning and that's good. So I think let's, if you're okay with switching gears for a second, there's wonderful research and approaches on how to heal, recover from racial trauma approaches in both psychotherapy, group counseling, ethnopolitical interventions, ethnocentric interventions, basically focusing on the culture. You know, these are things that are not taught in medical school, not taught in, you know, a lot, not really taught in some of these uh, venues. So I'm curious for you, what do you recommend for people, um, clinicians on how to learn, but also for people of color, marginalized groups who experience race-based trauma, how to take care of themselves? That take care
1: of themselves. Yeah, that's so important because just as it's important to acknowledge and accept the reality of racism and to, for you know, for everybody to accept that and the impact, the psychological harm it can cause, it's just as equally important to also recognize well, what can we do to mitigate some of that, to protect ourselves psychologically, right? To find some semblance of safety. And security uh, in all of this, and so one of the things that I do a lot in my work, which I have a disclaimer usually before I start talking with this to some of my clients, is like, okay, this is going to sound woo-woo and fluffy and like kind of like you know, new age stuff, but radical acceptance and self-compassion. Hmm. Okay. So number one, and that can literally be such a foreign and scary concept for a lot of the clients that I work with because they feel so scared to give themselves compassion and uh, self-acceptance because they worry that they're going to just fall apart if they're not hard on themselves. But part of this also, this self-compassion work is unpacking internalized racism Mm -hmm. that can often come up from race-based stress or be be a a product of race-based stress is this internalized racism, right? That taking on the negative thoughts and ideologies and stereotypes of whatever race group you belong to. And so really naming that and unpacking that and building a lot of self-compassion around that. And um, the other thing is, um, really supporting and cultivating ethnic identity and social connections, because you know, a lot of research has shown us that the stronger a person's uh, cultural identity is, or their ethnic identity is, the sense of community that they have, that is a buffer and a form of protection to race-based stress, and. I like to also work with my clients in increasing where that they, where do they have some control in their life? Because sometimes what happens is when a person of color lives in a society that feels oftentimes against them in a lot of ways, the mind just naturally biologically wants to just generalize and globally say, I am not safe anywhere. I am not safe at all. I will never be safe. And and so it just, It's a way of your mind kind of really trying to protect you. But sometimes that that overshadows actually people in their lives that they do feel safe around, cultivating some assertiveness when it's safe to do so, right? Cultivating that assertiveness qualities that they oftentimes already have. (laughs) They just aren't uh, expressing it as much. So I like to bring that out on my clients. And always, I always like to check in and make sure, is this a safe place for you? Like, especially physically, right? And uh, emotionally first, right? And I think those are the main things, the main things uh, that um, are important in healing from uh, race-based stress and trauma. Unfortunately, there isn't one one answer. There isn't one simple answer right. to just make it all go away. It's very complicated but those things i think can really help to carve out in a person's life some sense of yes. safety and security. Yes,
0: i completely agree. Oh, that's fantastic information. I'm going to just throw in a little bit just for kind of a both clinicians and general public, you know, increasing our cultural sensitivity and competence can be as simple as watching a television show that's focused with a group that you don't identify with. It can be as simple as reading a book you know, of a person's experience and just open-mindedly learning about it, right? That for clinicians and for people who who don't identify with this population. And for those who are experiencing these racial trauma symptoms, please know that there are plenty wonderful clinicians who do have this training of cultural responsiveness and racially informed interventions. And we are here to help, and that we, you know, want to be a resource in whichever way that we can. And, um, you know, this this trauma is significant, it is historical, it is present, and it's not going to go away, and that we honor all identities and intersectionality of identities, meaning that we all have something that we can try to connect on whatever that is, and also understanding our own identities in that way and how that's shaped and informed us. So I feel like you and I could do this for hours. Oh,
1: f- <laughs> oh for sure. Like you said earlier, like yes. we could, you know, go for hours on just the, the impact, the psychological impact of racism, right? On yes. folks. But, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, you know, this is a, I, I can see as a planting a seed as a start, right? A start yes. uh, of a conversation and collective conversations around the world, right? Yes. Just add on to those resources that you were saying to cultivate um, cultural competence, and is also just listening to podcasts from, yes, um, you know, <laughs> like this one, yes, and then like this one, like this one, <laughs> exactly. Um, also, another podcast that I think is really great. Um, to learn from is code switch, NPR's code switch. Um, They have a lot of really informative and in-depth topics on the topic of racism and race-based stress and trauma as well. Yes. You said even if something is watching a television show, the only thing I would say about that is just being mindful that it's not some stereotypical you know, <laughs> not any television yes, show, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. But <laughs> thank you. Yes,
0: yes. That, you know, I, I should have clarified
1: with that. So I that's appreciate. all right. Yes. You know, especially folks that aren't are <laughs> yeah. unexposed to people of color. You know, it can be easy to slip into and just reinforce stereotypes, right, through some of the stuff in the Correct. media. So yes. I think being mindful about maybe even googling what what are the ways that I can you know become culturally mindful and competent you know, or some podcasts or something like that, you know, I'm sure this one in code switch will pop up.
0: <laughs> yes. yes. And it's funny. I did. I have not. And see, that's where, again, we learn, we grow. I was um, not familiar with code switch as a podcast. I'm going to start listening to that ASAP. Um awesome. So thank you. <laughs> and thank you for catching me. See, this is where I I want to use myself as an example. I I know exactly what you were saying. I didn't say it, mm. and you're absolutely right. We want to make sure that the literature, the information that we're taking in, is I don't want I'm not going to say peer reviewed, but that it's definitely authentic and that it doesn't uh, perpetuate those negative stereotypes that we're used to. So, yes. but this is a learning moment, right? And this is if I could just model how hard that has been for me as a human. I think for all of us to say, hey. I've got to humble myself here and I don't know everything. And that is good because that offers an opportunity for me to learn from you, from others to grow. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it definitely gives us an opportunity to learn. And you yeah. know, that's what life's about. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, Michelle. And one of the things
1: that I would say that I myself am continuing to grow, it'll be a lifelong process is trying not to take That self-awareness on biases or isms that I have personally, right? Because I think that when we start Mm -hmm. to take it personally, Mm
0: -hmm. that's when we put up
1: the defenses and don't learn anymore.
0: That's right. That's right. And for anybody who's here listening and that you have this opportunity to explore yourself and your own biases, do it. Well, Dr. Moffitt, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm so grateful that you came back on and us to do this again. Uh, The first show was great, but I wanted to get more in depth, and I'm so grateful that you took that and ran with it with me, Um, and hopefully we can have more discussions in the near future. Thank you so much, Michelle. The information and advice offered is not intended to treat or diagnose and is not meant to replace any other professional consultation. If you'd like to know more about the San Diego Psychological Association, go to our website at sdpsych.org. That's S-D-P-S-Y-C-H Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care of yourself and be well.